if I'm uh, muted, but uh, we, we, we will try. Um, thank you very much, Rabbi, for, uh, for inviting me. Uh, it's, uh, it's an honor to be able to, uh, to speak on behalf of the uh, Chicago Mitzvah campaign. Um, you know, they do, uh, as everybody knows, they do incredible work uh, throughout the community. Uh, assisting people who uh, who are in need of assistance, and they really filled the, filled a tremendous uh, void. So my uh, my participation uh, together with them, joining with them, is something which is uh, which is truly an honor for me. So I appreciate the uh, the opportunity. Um, but the uh, the title I think that we gave was something about uh, discovering yourself, finding the uh, the real you, something along those lines. And uh, I would like to begin the uh, the exploration of that. Uh, with a little bit about the uh, the parsha, not something having to do with anything um, specific in terms of wording in the parsha, but just a general idea that in the uh, the parsha this week, so we get to uh, the the triumph, as it were, of uh, of Yitzias Mitzrayim. We get to the point where the Jewish people are finally going to be freed from slavery in Egypt, and this is something which uh, we know that for decades and decades. The Jewish people were davening, they were crying out to God, they were dreaming of the opportunity and the, uh, the, the moment where they would finally become free. They would be freed from the, uh, the oppressive slavery which they had to endure. And this is something which, uh, you know, is uh, exhilarating to, uh, to read about, that opportunity. And one would imagine that once Pesach rolls around, that, uh, that first year, the year that they are uh, still in Egypt, and it's clear that they are a free nation and they are now the masters of their destiny and they're no longer enslaved to the oppressive regime of the, uh, of the Egyptians, of Paro and the Egyptians, we would expect that things would now move on a trajectory moving forwards and upwards and we would see all sorts of good things, consistent good things coming from them. And that's what we would imagine. If we would imagine if any of us were in some sort of difficult situation, and we emerge from that difficulty that with the difficulty behind us, we'll be able to move forward and to make a significant forward and upwards progress. Um, but we know that uh, in the course of uh, Jewish history as recorded in the Torah, so the Jewish people stumbled many times. They stumbled seemingly the way the Torah sort of presents it at every opportunity they had to, uh, to stumble. So they had a complaint there wasn't enough food, there was enough water, Moshe Rabbeinu didn't come down from the mountain quickly enough. All throughout the, uh, the Torah, in the coming weeks, we're going to see incidents where the Jewish people were complaining about uh, their, their circumstance. Uh, much of Sefer Bamidbar also relates to incidents in Jewish history and their travels through the wilderness of things which you're not proud of, incidents with slaves and with Torah and people trying to force their way into, into Eretz Yisrael. And it's behavior which isn't really becoming a free people. And it's not really becoming of a people who had witnessed incredible, incredible miracles of plagues in the Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and Amakas Bechoros. And eventually next week we'll have Kriyas Yamsuf. And there were un unimaginable miracles which they experienced and they saw firsthand. And it leaves the, the thinking person, how is it possible that the Jewish people could keep saying that keep falling and making these errors, which from our perspective seem to be pretty uh, uh, bad errors, errors which we don't expect that we would make. And not only do they get our errors made, 
But in many instances, they will say, they complain to Moshe Rabbeinu, life would have been better for us in Mitzrayim. Back when we were in Mitzrayim, it was much better than the situation that you've created or you've put, out, you've put us in at this point. And that's, it's inconceivable. How could they possibly think that their enslaved, tortured lives would be better than the circumstance they had as free people? Granted, they may not have had all of the luxuries which, uh, which they wanted, but how could they possibly think that Egypt would have been better for them? And that's the, uh, the, uh, the beginning of this, uh, this uh, discussion, which I would like, to, uh, which I would like to, uh, to have with you. So in order to understand how Klai Yisrael, how I think Klai Yisrael could actually do this, so we have, to take a, uh, we have to take a step back a little bit, and we have to talk about how the conscious and subconscious mind work in our conscious thoughts and what are our uh, subconscious thoughts. HaKadosh um, Baruch created mankind in, uh, in many incredible ways, but one of the incredible ways by which he created mankind was uh, that we have the ability to develop habits. Now, when I say habits, sometimes habits has a negative connotation that, uh, that, people, uh, that people think about. People think about negative habits in terms of uh, uh, eating too much or sleeping too much or spending too much time on their phone or on their, uh, their, their computer, too much social media. We think of habits in terms of bad things, but habits actually serve an incredibly useful purpose. And the incredibly useful, the incredible useful purpose which habits have is it frees up our mind to be able to address things which actually require our attention. So the mind can only handle one conscious uh, thought-focused um, uh, idea at a time. And uh, we, if necessary, to uh, attend to two different things, we have to shift, we have to go A, B, B, A, A, B, but we can't do A and B at the same time. Let me give you some examples of what, the, of what I mean. Uh, everybody here has uh, tied their shoes uh, thousands of times over the course of a lifetime, if not even more than that. So tying our shoes already is a habitual act. It's something that we could do and it doesn't require our conscious attention. It's something that we could do in a sense subconsciously. It can be done without having to give it any thought whatsoever. And that allows us to be able to have a conversation with somebody. And at the same time, we can be tying our shoes. Because tying our shoes, the habit of tying our shoes doesn't require any conscious thought on our part. And therefore we can get away with doing two things. That's how we could do two things at the same time. Because one of them is going to, only one of them is going to demand conscious thought. And the other one is going to, is, uh, does not demand conscious thought. Could be done habitually or could be done out of a, uh, with the, uh, the subconscious. And that's, it's an incredible thing that that allows us to be able to multitask. Multitasking ultimately comes from the fact that I'm able to do a number of mindless acts which don't require my conscious attention while I'm still doing one thing which is going to require my attention. Uh, I imagine everybody here has uh, spent a lot of time, most people here have probably spent a lot of time driving. I spend a lot of time driving carpool, for, uh, for example. People in show by me know I talk about that my full-time profession is carpool, and then in between carpools, so I have opportunities to learn once in a while and to teach sometimes. But for the most part, I, uh, I, I drive carpool. Uh, and being that I come from Skokie and my kids go to school in West Rogers Park, so the trip down McCormick is a mindless trip for me. 
I'm able to go from uh, uh, McCormick in church and just go all the way down to, uh, to, uh, to at least Devon and not give it one conscious thought whatsoever. I could be breaking up fights in the back with the kids. I could be trying to figure out which music we're gonna put on or which stories we're going to put on. I could be involved in all sorts of different activities without having to think about the driving element of it because I've driven that route so many times. I could do it subconsciously. I could do it without having to give it conscious thought. And we all know that sometimes you could be driving to a destination and you get there while you were talking on the phone the whole time and you get there and you, you, you pause for a moment and say, actually, I don't remember driving here at all. I know I wanted to come to this destination, but I don't remember any part of that trip because I was talking to somebody, I was engaged, I was thinking about a drasha, I was thinking about a shear, I was thinking about something else because driving for us is an unconscious act, one which we can do habitually without, uh, without much of a challenge. But now consider the following scenario. You're driving and you're talking to somebody on the phone engaged in whatever you're paying attention to, uh, to whatever their troubles are, and you're trying to be, uh, to be helpful. Or let's say you're driving and you have uh, kids in the back and you're having a conversation with the kids or the kids are conversing amongst themselves. And all of a sudden, torrential rain starts, uh, starts falling from the sky. And it's such a hard rain that your windshield wipers are struggling to keep up with the, uh, with the rain which is, which is falling. So what do you do if you're on the phone with somebody and all of a sudden it starts to pour cats and dogs? What I think most of us do at that moment is we say to the person we're talking to, it's pouring out, I can't talk to you anymore, I'll call you back soon. Why do we go ahead and we say to the person, I, I've just been driving for the past two hours mindlessly without having to think about it at all. I'm driving from Chicago to New York. And once I get on the highway over there, even the GPS doesn't say anything for uh, you know hundreds and hundreds of uh, hundreds of miles. So why all of a sudden do I have to tell the person, sorry, I got to hang up? Because when fear kicks in, when the when it's raining and it's slippery and it's dangerous outside, suddenly driving goes from a subconscious act to a conscious act. Now I need to attend to what I'm doing. Now I need to attend to the road. I need to attend to my car. I need to attend to all of those different things. Because once it's dangerous, I can no longer rely on habit. Once danger arises, that, that requires a completely different set of, of, of skills and a different thought process to be able to do so. And now driving those from something which was subconscious, something which, I, which was habitual, to something which I need to do very consciously and very deliberately in order to make sure that I'm going to be, be safe. So I'll tell the person I'm talking to, sorry, I can't talk to you anymore. If the kids are in the back, I may tell them, listen, be quiet now. Everybody quiet down because it's raining and I need to focus. And for hundreds of, uh, of miles, they were able to yell and scream and laugh and, and talk and play in the back of the car. But all of a sudden, once I see that there's danger, now suddenly I need to go ahead and I need to, uh, I need to attend. And this is something which, as I said, it's a tremendous bracha that Hashem has given us, this ability to be able to multitask but we have to realize that we're only attending to one thing at a time. In most of what we do, some scientists actually estimate that it's between 90 to 95% of what we do is subconscious. It does not require conscious thought. It's not within that realm, what we would call of Bechira Chavshis. You're not actually making a choice about it because it's something which just is a habit which you go ahead and you, uh, and you follow. 
The significance of this is, one of the significance of this is, and if there are people from Sholan, so they'll know that I, I've been talking about this uh, for the past uh, you know, weeks and months, but this, a significant uh, element of this is, is that there is the, uh, in the autonomic nervous system, uh, in the way also how Kodesh Baruch Hu wired us, so there's really only two modes which we exist in. The sympathetic mode and the parasympathetic mode for those who want to get the technical. But in layman's terms, what there is, is I'm either in a state of rest and digest, where I have an opportunity, that's where learning takes place, that's where thinking takes place, that's where I'm not in a state of danger or anxiety. And then the other one is what is called fight or flight, or really fight, flight, or freeze. And that is where the brain has detected something which is dangerous, some potential danger. It may be that it saw something moving around and you think that it's a snake and you get scared. It may be all sorts of different things. It could be uh, uh, you know, hearing bad news from somebody, which suddenly sends us into that, uh, that mindset where we feel where the heart rate starts racing, our breathing gets shallow, or we begin to breathe from our chest rather than from, uh, from our belly. All sorts of things happen once we go into that fight, flight, or freeze state of mind or uh, 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 existence. One of the things which happens when we go into our fight or flight mode is, if you think about it, so uh, when I'm being uh, chased, uh, they always talk about it, when uh, people talk about it, they always talk about being chased by, uh, by a bear for some reason. So if I'm being chased by a bear, so there's no way I'm going to be able to fight that bear. That's, uh, that's just not happening. The bear is uh, enormous and enormously strong. So fighting the bear is not uh, possible. The only option I really have is flight. So if I need to go ahead and I need to run away from the bear, I don't need any cognitive thinking. Cognitive thinking requires a lot of blood flow going through the brain in order to give it the fuel and the energy to be able to formulate thoughts. And when I'm in that fight or flight mode, I need blood flow in my muscles. I need either my legs to take me out of that place as quickly as I possibly can to get me to safety. In the event that I am going to fight, I need my arms to have all of the blood flow that they could possibly have in order to make sure that I'll be able to fight and I'll be able to win the fight and I'll be able to survive. And when that happens, that switch goes off in the, in the mind. And when the switch goes off in the mind, blood flow goes to the extremities, the hands and the feet, and it empties out of the brain. And that front part of the brain, which is where our cognitive thoughts comes from, it's where our Bechira is going to come from, it essentially goes offline. And if you talk about people who, for example, experience some sort of trauma, so often they can't tell you exactly what happened. And they can't, they can't, they can't put words to well what happened because while the experience was going on, they weren't thinking. They weren't capable of thinking. It's not that they weren't thinking, but they weren't capable of thinking because the blood wasn't going to the part of the brain where that would happen. It's in the hands and the feet in order to be able to escape or in order to be able to in order to work the fight. Now, if a person is in this, uh, this state of mind of fear or anxiety or fight or flight, so where does their behavior come from? So if the behavior is not emanating, is not coming from conscious thought, they're not actually exercising their Bechira at that point, so where does that, where does that behavior come from? So where that behavior comes from is what we talked about before in terms of our habits. 
That's where our habits are going to be significant. The way we respond in those situations is something which is, in a sense, programmed into who we are. Ask yourself a question. Um, everybody uh, here, I assume, was probably on the receiving end of, of some point in their life, if not many times in their life, depending on your boss, but somebody was probably on the receiving end of somebody yelling at you. So how do you respond when somebody yells at you? Actually, before you, you answer how you respond, how do people respond when they are yelled at? So when they're yelled at, so some people go ahead and they'll yell back. That I think would be called fight. They fight back by yelling back. Some people will go ahead and let's say they will apologize and they'll try and get away from the yelling as quickly as they can. Let's call that flight. They're trying to get out of that difficult situation. And then there may be a third group of people who just sort of get that deer in the headlights look on them and they just sort of freeze up and they, their eyes glaze over and they just look at that person and they say nothing. They don't defend themselves, they don't excuse themselves, they don't apologize, they don't even have words. They just sort of sit there and they just sort of stare as they're being yelled at for whatever that, that, that they did. Uh, and that's, that's their response. Sometimes you can see that in some children that when they're getting in trouble, they just, they, they become completely frozen in place and they can't, they, they almost can't even move and they certainly can't go ahead and, and talk. And they have to be, you know, uh, cuddled a little bit in order to calm them down and bring them, uh, bring them back. So knowing that there's three different reactions that people can have, generally, three different reactions that people have. They could yell back, they could apologize, or they could just deer in the headlights and freeze. So now think about what your response is when people yell at you. Do you consciously make a decision about how you're going to respond? Do you say to yourself, in your mind, I have three ways I could respond to my boss. I can yell back, I can go ahead and I could apologize, or I can freeze, and which of this is going to be the best option for me? I would assume that nobody actually has that conscious thought in the moment. Afterwards, you may regret it and say, oh, I should have done this, and I should have done that, and next time I'm not gonna allow anybody to walk all over me, and I'm going, to, I'm going to defend myself. But in the moment when that happens, you're not making a conscious choice how you're going to respond to somebody yelling at you. What you end up doing is you revert back to your programming or you revert back to your habits. And those habits are, that's what we, uh, our, our, our ideas and behaviors and attitudes which we develop as very small children. Some scientists say that the, it's, or the programming takes place from zero to seven. That's when children are picking up these, uh, these, uh, these different ideas of values and morals and attitudes and stuff of that, uh, that, uh, that sort. It's the affective part of chinuch, if any of the uh, educators are there, not the, the, the nuts and bolts of what you need to do, the, the ABCs and, the, uh, and the, uh, the times tale, the multiplication table, but it's the attitude that one is going to have towards Torah and mitzvahs and towards learning and towards other people. So those things are really programmed based on the experiences we have primarily from zero to seven. And then when situations arise later on in life, it doesn't matter now if you're eight, you're 18, you're 28, 38, 78, 88. So whenever the front part of their brain, whenever the cognitive part of the brain goes offline because there's a, a threat, because the, the person is feeling threatened in that moment. So what is then going to dictate their behavior is not their choice, is not cognitive choice. What dictates their behavior at that point is the habits which they develop or the programming which is already there. 
it then runs on a loop. It runs automatically. As we said, it's not something which is subject to Bechira. It's not something you're choosing to do. It's something you go back to because you're not even thinking and that's just the way that, you, that, uh, that one is programmed. This is considered uh, uh, to be such a strong principle that when a person finds himself struggling with something, sometimes I, uh, I, I tell people in, uh, in shul, I tell people who, uh, who uh, you know, come and speak with me about the things. So I tell them that uh, an idea from Rabbi Saraka Cohen, he says, he maintains that the area where a person struggles, if you ever find yourself saying, why does this keep happening to me? If there's some incident which you find keeps happening to you, it doesn't happen to anybody else you know, but it happens to you time, seemingly time and time again. So Tzadok is of the opinion that that is an indication that that's where your godless resides. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is putting those situations in place for you to struggle because you need to struggle with that part in that particular area because that struggle in that area is going to allow you to perfect that particular mida, that particular character trait, or that particular, uh, that particular issue. And that's why Baruch Hu is that master chess player, he goes ahead and moves around the pieces time and time again to put you into that situation so that you should be able to face it, so that eventually you should be able to succeed. It's not just Avram Avinu who had to experience a series of tests, we also experience tests over the course of our lifetime. And that is one of the ways which we, uh, which we are able to decipher what makes us unique as opposed to other people, as opposed to our other friends or other relatives or other, um, uh, other people that, uh, that we know. So one way to, uh, to decipher that, to figure that out is to analyze what your struggles are. What is that thing which seemingly keeps happening to you that, uh, that uh, you, uh, you have difficulty with? That is one thing. But another thing is, is that when you find yourself struggling, what that means is, on a, on a somewhat deeper level, what that means is you're trying to do something which isn't consistent with your programming. The programming which we developed, as we said, the attitudes and the morals and our perception of things which are formulated as children so that the program now allows for a certain range of activities, a certain range of skills, a certain range of, what, of, of behaviors which we are going to follow. If a person decides one day that they're going to do something which is not consistent with that, they're going to struggle. Why are they going to struggle? Because as we said, consciously, we only could do one conscious thing at a time. And whenever we're not using our conscious mind, the habits, which we have, the programming which we have from youth, will always, that's going to be the default system which will, which will always step in. So I could consciously, in the moment, I could go ahead and I could say, you know what? I'm going to watch what I eat. No more junk food and no more cake and no more cookies and no more chips. I'm going to consciously make an effort to go ahead and eat healthy. And then I'm sitting there at the table and I'm typing and I'm working, doing some work. And without even thinking about it, my hand goes over to the bowl of chips and suddenly halfway through the bowl, I realized that my hands are salty and getting it all over my keyboard. I wasn't even thinking about it. I didn't even realize what I was doing at the time because it's so habitual to eat while I'm working that I end up doing that. And it's not even a conscious thought. I didn't even realize I was doing it till, uh, till, uh, till I'm already halfway, uh, halfway through. So that is this, that's where habits are going to come in. And that's where, they, uh, where we see that uh, that's where our struggles are going to be. And sometimes we allow struggles 
to become a deterrent. Say, ah, it's not for me. It's not worth pursuing. I can't do it. It has nothing to do with it not being for you. It has nothing to do with an inability to go ahead and do so. What one has to realize as they catch themselves struggling is it just means that they're doing something counter to the programming which is already in their brain. And it's possible to reprogram the brain. You can always go back. There are different methods which, uh, which people have as far as reprogramming the, uh, the, the brain into doing something. But the, 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 the summary of, of how that is going to be done is really to develop good habits. Get yourself in the habit of doing good things and that undoes the habits which you may uh, not be, uh, which you would like to go ahead and abandon and you'd like to go ahead and, and, and put aside. And that's a struggle that we have is to be able to set up a, a system whereby we'll be able to, in many ways, habitually do good things because we know that that's the right thing to do, even though currently we may go ahead and, and, and struggle with, with, with those things. And this could be in our Ben our interpersonal relationships. This could be in the Ben This could be as far as our relationship with Akadosh Baruch Hu. This could express itself in all sorts of different ways, but the struggle means that you're really on your path to do a good thing. You shouldn't, don't, nobody should perceive the struggle to mean that they can't. It, all it means is it's an indication that you're trying to rewrite the programming, which is, which is already there. Let's, in the, uh, the last couple of minutes, let's swing this back around to Klai Yisrael and the, what we started off with. So Klai Yisrael, we know at this point in, their, in Jewish history, they were born with a complete slave mentality. That was their existence. They knew no other existence except what it meant to be a slave. And although they dreamed about what it would mean to be free, and they probably dreamed about all these great accomplishments and all these great things that they're going to do, and they're going to be loyal to Hashem, and they're going to daven 24 hours a day, and they're going to do chesed 24 hours a day, and they're going to learn 24 hours a day, and they're going to do all of those things. They're going to be in the midbar, and they're just going to be completely dedicated to Hashem. And consciously, that was the ratzon. That's what they actually wanted to do. But then what happens when suddenly there's no food? If there's no food on the table, so where does the mind go? The mind panics. If we don't have what we want, if we perceive as if we're not going to be able to, uh, to survive this, if this is going to be too difficult. So as we said, that's where fight or flight kicks in. And the thinking part of the brain, the zone part of the brain, the Bechira part of the brain, that goes offline. And once that goes offline, we revert back to our original programming. In the original program, programming for Klal Yisrael at this point was still to be slaves because that's what they knew. That's what they grew up with. That's what their parents grew up with. In all likelihood, that's what almost all of their grandparents grew up with. So it was already multi-generational in terms of being, is being a slave. And that wires the brain into that mode of thinking. And it takes effort, very, uh, very concerted effort, a very conscious effort to break yourself out of that. And what we read over the course of the Torah is actually, it, it, it's not something to be critical of. It's not something to say, I don't understand how they could possibly do this. This is something that we all do in different areas, not in the same areas of them, but we all end up reverting back to our programming when we find ourselves in stress, when we're experiencing anxiety, when we feel, when we feel threatened or we feel unsafe in any sort of way. And what we're watching Klai Yisrael is really the growth of Klai Yisrael and we're seeing the development of Klai Yisrael, and we're watching Klai Yisrael rewrite their programming so that they will, will be able to 
learn 24 hours a day, daven 24 hours a day, do chesed 24 hours a day, to, all the, to do all of the wonderful things which they dream about and they aspire for and they, uh, they would like to be able to accomplish. But it's something which requires concerted conscious effort to develop the good habits in order to be able to, uh, to, to accomplish that. And that's where they were. And that's the reflection which we have to have in ourselves to think about what are the, the areas personally where we struggle at whatever age it is. I just will make sure that our struggles change as we, as we age. And to think about those and to realize that those struggles are something which are unique to us. It's something which I just plans and orchestrates specifically for us. And the way to overcome that is to rewrite the programming to develop better habits, which are going to allow us to be able to do the rutzon that we want to do, to be able to exercise our bechira to a, to a greater degree. And uh, you know, if I have the ability uh, to do so as a coin, I have somewhat of ability, but the, the bracha is that everybody should be able to uh, easily identify what their struggles are, where their potential greatness lies, and they should have the, uh, the strength the focus, the consciousness, uh, to be able to rewrite the programming in their uh, their mind, so that they should be able to actualize uh, all that. All of you should be able to actualize your your potential and uh, fulfill the destiny which uh, Hakadosh Baruch Hu has in mind for, uh, for the personal destiny which Hakadosh Baruch Hu has in mind for each of you.